So this is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is a Sunday that is about uh, kingship, because um, on the Sunday before the Passover, on the Sunday before this story occurred, um, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and um, it was a sign of his kingship that he did that. It was intentional. He set it up that way. He wanted to show everyone that he was the king. And as he came in, there were huge crowds uh, on either side, and they were, they were just going wild. They were, um, they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving palm branches, and I, I think of it like a, a big concert, like a U2 concert or a Coldplay concert, where they would come down the middle of that runway, and there were just people thronging, trying to touch them on either side, going crazy, going wild. So that's the scene... Because um, they were so hopeful, finally, that their Messiah had come. The Jews had this ancient, ancient hope of a king that would come and bring peace, not only to the Jewish nation, but to the whole world. And here he was, the, uh, the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, coming to his capital, the capital city of Zion. And he was um, ready to be crowned the ruler of the world. That was on Sunday. And now here it is on Friday and uh, look at what has happened. Uh, it seems like it's a complete disaster. Verse 16, Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And at that point, it just seems like everything has gone completely wrong. Completely wrong. Pontius Pilate is the governor, the Roman governor of the territory of Judea. And he would have been the arch enemy of the people of God. And here he was in control of their king, delivering King Jesus over to these brutal soldiers, uh, merciless soldiers who enjoyed torturing their victims. And all of this is after this horrible mistrial where four times Pontius Pilate actually declared that Jesus was innocent. And yet through a series of manipulations and bad circumstances and accidents, it says that they, they took Jesus, verse 16, after this terrible, terrible mistrial. It seemed like this massive accident. They took him. And um, we know from history that they would have, uh, they would have pulled out their whips um, and they would have lacerated his back. And they, these whips had uh, not only leather, but they had little pieces of bone in there. And not only did they do that, they actually put um, the horizontal crossbeam which would have been certainly wider than this table right here and much heavier. Imagine a railroad tie, that kind of thing. They would have put that on his back. And as part of the humiliation of the prisoner, this wasn't just to Jesus, this was to anyone who was crucified. They would put that on his back, and he had to carry his own instrument of torture from the place where he was sentenced uh, all the way outside the city, around the city, outside the gate, and then up this hill. So it says in verse 17... Uh, he went out bearing his own cross. And some commentaries have compared it to Isaac, the son of Abraham, who would carry his own, um, his own wood up the hill to Mount Moriah where he would be sacrificed. This was another example of the victim carrying uh, his own instrument of execution. And you can imagine with the, with the weakness he felt that at times he would stumble. We know he stumbled. It says he stumbled. That the wood would have, uh, you know, hit the, hit the ground. It was wobbling around. And we know that uh, at some point he reached the top of this uh, kind of hideous, grotesque, gothic-looking rock outcropping. And it's, it's still there today. 
And it, uh, it looks like a skull, which is in verse 17, the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Greek, it's uh, cranium, the, the cranium hill. And cranium is where we get our word for you know, skull, because it looks so much like a skull. So you could call, we probably call it skull hill, skull hill in English. That's where they took him. And when they got there, they would have laid that beam down on the ground, and they would have ordered him to lay down on the beam, to lay his hands down, uh, stretched out on the beam. And then uh, they would have probably, you know, tied his, uh, his arms to it on the sides. And, uh, you know, if you imagine like a spike that, a, again, that a railroad tie, you know, the spikes in, in the railroads, those kind of things, it would have probably been something like that. But they would have, and they actually nailed it into his wrists because it was not, if you put it into the, the palm of the hand, it wouldn't hold. So they put it into the wrists and then uh, they, they would have lifted him up, which is a word he used a lot. Earlier in his life, he said, uh, when I am lifted up. So he, he, he knew this, exactly this very thing would happen. When, when I am lifted up. He says it again and again and again in the Gospel of John. So he was aware of this his whole life, that this would be his fate. So they had these telephone pole-like things that were already driven into the ground permanently on the top of Golgotha. And that's why there would be so much staining of blood on that area, because uh, these criminals were regularly, many of them crucified uh, together up on that horrible hill. And so it says in verse 18, they crucified him. And the Roman historian and philosopher Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and terrifying of all punishments. He was very opposed to it in his day, politically, opposed, absolutely opposed to crucifixion. And um, one modern scholar describes it this way. Uh, there was increasing inflammation of wounds from the unnatural bodily position. There was forced immobility and rigidity of the limbs. There were local congestions, especially in the head, painful disturbance of circulation, burning fever, thirst. And, um, you know, it's hard to think about this. This is obviously a little more extended uh, Introduction that I usually do. I usually have, at this point, I would have the two points, but uh, I think with this idea of crucifixion, um, it's worth just kind of lingering on what was actually happening here. And if you are of the opinion that human nature is basically good, I think that you have to kind of um, stop and think hard about what, what kind of, what kind of uh, race of, of animals would, would devise something like crucifixion. And they would take this innocent person, a very good person, whether you believe that he is God or not, uh, most people would admit that Jesus was a good person. He was a healer. He was humble, uh, a holy man, kind of like an alien from another planet almost. He was so good. And, and he comes to this planet, and what, what does the human race, and even the, the best people of the planet, because these are religious leaders, this is the Roman system of law at work here. So you got the kind of the cream of the crop of the of the of planet Earth. Here comes this good person, and what do humans do? Um, we crucify him. And not only that, um, after the crucifixion itself, uh, they felt the need to uh, publicly humiliate him. And so Pilate, in verse nineteen, if you look at that, Pilate is so irritated by the trial uh, because it really bothered him that uh, the chief priests had basically manipulated him into having to do this. They strong-armed him into having to crucify Jesus. He didn't want to do that. And so he was so irritated by all of that that he kind of got back at them. He stuck it to them by writing this inscription 
They would always write and they would always write the charge of the criminal on top of the criminal. So if you were a thief, it would just say thief in a placard above that cross. If you were a, a traitor, it would say traitor above the cross. And in this case, in this case, what did Pilate write? Uh, to mock the Jews, he wrote Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, just as a way to make sport, to make fun of them. Obviously, it was ironic. He didn't believe it at all. This would have been like writing on top of a, a concentration camp or something like uh, that, you know, the Ritz-Carlton or the Hilton Grand Vacation. It was a way of debasing Jesus to say, this is the supposed king of the Jews. And if you notice that Pilate wanted this to be very public, and so in verse 20, it says that uh, they, they crucified him at a place near the city where many people would uh, come in and out, back and forth. Very public place where they crucified him so that everybody could see this spectacle. And um, not only that, but if you look in verse 20 later, Pilate wants it written in three languages. And so you have, uh, you have Aramaic, which is the language of the people, and uh, you have uh, Latin, which would be the language of the soldiers, and then you also have Greek, which would be the, kind of the language of the, the whole empire. So, um, so this was done um, for everyone to be able to read. There's no one in that area. And Jerusalem had about a million people this time of year. A million people kind of buzzing around the city. I mean, imagine on 4th Street, you know, right there at uh, Mellow Mushroom. That would be where they would have him uh, raised up all four languages, this is the supposed king of the Jews. And it was Pilate's way of, of mocking Jesus, but also mocking uh, the whole Jewish system. He hated the chief priests. He hated, he hated the Jews that he had to rule over. And uh, Josephus in uh, 94 AD, Josephus was a Jewish historian, definitely not a Christian, aware of Christians. Uh, he wrote this uh, about 60 years after that event that I just described. And he says that... Uh, Pilate, at the suggestion of the Jewish leaders, had Jesus condemned to the cross. So if you're one of those people that doubts whether Jesus really existed or if the crucifixion really happened or not, that is, an, that is a source that is not from Christians and is not in the Bible that absolutely clear that the crucifixion happened. And then a little bit later, 20 years after that, a Roman historian now, his name's Tacitus, he wrote that uh, Christus... Um, Christus underwent the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of Pontius Pilate. And in so doing, a pernicious superstition was checked. So those are two uh, extra-biblical attestations of the fact that this really happened. Uh, there, it's really historically irresponsible to doubt this occurred. And it's not only a fact of history, but um, in many ways, this kind of suffering is a part of all of our lives. Now, not this extreme but I think every single one of us experiences stuff that really makes you doubt um, that basically that the world is a good place, the world is a kind place, that even that God could be good. Um, this, this is an absolutely dark and morbid thing that I'm describing. And I'm sorry to have to be so dark and morbid, but um, like I said, this stuff really happens. The Bible tells it like it is. It plumbs the depth of human experience. The saddest things of all. There's a kind of a suffering in life that um, makes you really doubt uh, that God is good and that God is powerful. 
And um, not just any suffering, but this special kind where I don't know exactly what kind of word I would use. Maybe um, it, it's meaningless or extreme or it's inconceivable. It's egregious. It's kind of random. Uh, there's just a certain kind where it's like this is too far. That that's going too far. I, I'm okay with this amount of suffering, but that uh, is, is too much. And um, the, the one point that I want to make through this passage is that there's, there's nothing like that kind of suffering. And it's this kind of suffering in this passage. There's nothing like that to make you doubt God and to weaken and undermine your faith. People that, have, people that no longer believe, that used to believe, I find it's often because of, because of this very thing, this kind of egregious suffering. But um, on the other hand, um, there's nothing that will make you trust God as much as that suffering when you see it as meaningful, as part of a, as part of a plan, or as part of what God is doing in the world. That Jesus brings that meaning into what otherwise would seem like uh, meaningless suffering. So I don't know exactly how to describe uh, what meaningless suffering is, but it's kind of like Jesus having to carry his own cross. It's one of those little details of the passage that's just kind of cruel beyond belief. That... Um, It'd be like taking a criminal on death row in Alabama and then you, um, you make them kind of like pick out the needle and put in the, the poison that they used to inject the criminal and then take that needle back to the room where it happens. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. It's hideous to do something like that. And it's one of those things that you look at that, if you read about that kind of thing in a paper, you just think to yourself, how could God let that happen? Especially to an innocent person. You know, especially when it's children or someone who, who is vulnerable, that's when you just think, this is, this is just too much. I had a famous uh, professor at uh, seminary, famous Hebrew professor named Dr. Seau, and he wrote a really uh, famous commentary on Ecclesiastes and Job because he was very interested in suffering and meaninglessness, which is like what Job and Ecclesiastes are about. And he would tell this story, um, it's a hard story to hear, that his... his um, his little daughter, I don't remember how, she, how old she was, but she was walking home. Um, you know, she's like eight or nine or ten, something like that. She's walking home on a little two-lane road, and a car comes up from behind, and it kind of grazes her. Uh, the car doesn't realize that it hit anyone, and so she gets knocked over unconscious. And she falls into a puddle that's only about that deep. And her face falls in at just the wrong angle, and she drowns. And he would tell us it wasn't so much the suffering that got to me. It was the fact that it just seemed so random and so accidental and like it shouldn't have happened that way. And he actually said the only thing that comforted him was when a friend of him just sat there and just came and just sat. Every day would just come and sit next to him and didn't say a word. So if you know someone's suffering like that, uh, you don't want to talk about that God has a plan for your life. You just want to sit there and just be with them. But at some point you need to think about it. And that's what we're doing right here. And and what the cross says about Dr. Seau, uh, which is why he would tell the story, is that there is no suffering that is meaningless. There, there, is, no suff- there is nothing gratuitous. Uh, even, in, even, in this, even this torture, um, it seems like that couldn't possibly be part of any kind of purpose or plan or scheme or anything like that. But if you look at verse 23... Uh, it says that the soldiers, after they had crucified him, they took his garments. So there he is, and they decide as one more indignity, we're going to strip him naked and take all of his clothes. So they took his clothes, and you, again, you think, well, what could be the point of doing that? Why would you do that? 
And not only that, but they, they gamble for his clothes. They say in verse 24, let us cast lots to see who shall get it. Now again, think about the fact that the gospel writers wrote this wanting to include these little strange details. But then it says in verse 24, and this is a strange thing of all, in 24 it says that 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 was a fulfillment of Scripture. And when it says fulfillment of Scripture, it's talking about an Old Testament passage. In this case, Psalm 22, 18, you can look it up. But the, the 22nd Psalm, verse 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So this is one of those little tiny gruesome details that would tend to make you doubt. And it says that a thousand years earlier, that that one little detail about gambling away his clothing, that that was somehow uh, planned, that, that that was in the story a thousand years earlier. And I would say it wasn't just that Psalm 22 was like a crystal ball that kind of told the future. It wasn't just that. It was more like a driving force in a story that had to go this way. And that's why it says in verse 24, so the soldiers did these things. That little word so is important. That means that, that somehow that, uh, that psalm, actually because of the force of that prophecy by, by David who wrote the psalm, that drove the event to occur. And so the soldiers did these things. The plan drove the event. And it wasn't just the gambling. It says it again in verse 28. Uh, after this, Jesus, knowing that all had finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Also a quote from Psalm 22. And it's another one of those bizarre details of the death. Verse 29, they take this sponge of sour vinegar and uh, they soak it. They put it up to his lips and uh, because he's thirsty, they let him drink from it. Kind of to numb the pain. And that too is part of this tapestry. This, uh, this masterpiece that God was painting about the whole story of the universe. And it's kind of like a Rembrandt where, you know, you, you paint one little dot on the canvas and uh, one little tiny gold fleck uh, of a Rembrandt painting will make the eye of that person kind of shine. Or another thing he does a lot is there'll be a large dark patch. And sometimes those dark patches will draw attention to other parts of the painting. And uh, Peter tells us in Acts 2.23, this whole thing, from, from start to finish, the whole thing was planned part of a plan. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan. He didn't just put plan, but definite, exact plan. This is Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you you look at what happened to him and you think, if only he hadn't come into Jerusalem. The disciples told him not to. If only he had not spoken so boldly in Jerusalem when he got there. If only Judas had not betrayed him. If only... Pilate had been a little more firm and on and on, if only this, if only that, if only this. And yet, uh, it says that this was the definite plan and foreknowledge. It didn't look like a plan. It looked like a great big accident. But every single dot of this thing is meaningful, has purpose. If you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know that painting in the Chicago Museum of Art by George Seurat that's the pointillistic painting, has a little dots on it. So if you, if you zoom into one, Uh, or even 5 or 10 or 20, it makes no sense what's going on there. But you pull back and see the whole thing, and it's this beautiful painting of a Sunday afternoon on an island. 
And I think that all these little details that happen all the time, not just the crucifixion, that's one little window into it, but it's everything. And the claim here is that that's part of this uh, giant thing, this canvas that none of us can see because we're too close to it. There was a bomber in Austin, Texas this week. You might have heard of this. Uh, Mark Anthony Condit. He was 23 years old. And uh, no one had a clue uh, about the mental condition of this guy. And he, tr- he dropped off packages around town randomly, seemingly randomly, on uh, different doorsteps. And um, it just happened. Again, notice the phrase. It just so happened that in one house, the, the, the person that came out to get the package was 17 years old. And you, th- you think, that's meaningless. That's, that's crazy. That's, uh, there's no way that could be part of anything bigger. If you've seen the, the, the movie No Country for Old Men, this is one of the things that that movie explores. It's just randomness, meaningless evil. Because the main, the, the main villain is this guy, and uh, he just kind of randomly kills. So he'll flip a coin. The, if the coin lands heads, he kills the person. If it lands tails, he doesn't. And it kind of just, the point is, it's random, it's accidental, everything is, is meaningless. All this suffering, all this evil. Certainly Skull Hill, right? That would be one of the things you would say is about as, as uh, egregious, extreme, um, inconceivable as anything you could imagine. So if, if that is a dot in the canvas, as, as we know that it is, then why not Austin, Texas, uh, Dr. Seau, his daughter, anything that's going on in your life, uh, why not that? Why not those things? And, and, and this is important, even the little things, because I know that not many of us right now are experiencing that level of tragedy. Uh, at some point, we probably all will experience a, a, a great deal of tragedy. It's impossible to go through life without it. Uh, right now, you might be saying, my suffering is nothing in comparison to anything you're talking about. All that stuff is way too heavy and deep. Right now, I'm just trying to study for an exam or something like that. But um, that would be missing the point of the passage. Because the point of the passage is that it's every detail. Uh, that it's a definite plan. And, every, and, and the thing is that it's talking about gambling clothes. Um, it's, it's talking about these little details. Drinking uh, this sponge of sour wine. And it's, it's, it's losing your keys. It's those little things, um, your child spray painting your front walkway by accident, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, your, um, your wife breaking uh, a valuable little bowl that you gave her for Christmas. Um, those kind of little things where it just fell wrong and it chipped. Those are little things that uh, they kind of just make you feel like this is, all, this is all an accident. These things were not, couldn't be part of any plan. I was driving past someone's house that I know this week, and uh, I, was, I had gone past the house, okay? So my wife said, why didn't you do anything? I had driven past the house. I saw this kind of behind me. And uh, she was coming out. She had a, a giant, a bulging purse around her shoulder. She had um, this package. She was carrying some big package in this hand. The shoulder was like this, so she was balancing like that. And she had her iPhone in this hand, and her child was running past her to the car, and she reached out to grab the child. And then this hand opened up a little bit. And then the iPhone fell out. And, it, and I could tell by the way she knelt on the ground in mourning, kind of by the phone, that, <laughs> that it wasn't just one of those flip to the right side of the phone. It, it had cracked. 
the screen. And again, trivial in many ways. Yet one of those things where you just say to yourself, it's a little dark spot that doesn't feel anything like a masterpiece. It just feels like it's random, like it's an accident. It's one of those stories where you say there's no way. Uh, A romance that suddenly ends, a job that is suddenly lost, an illness that suddenly sweeps over you in your life, or a child that suddenly turns on you. We've all got stories like this. We could all go around and tell each other stories right now. Some of them this week, some of them last year, some of the last decade. Um, Things that we've got to process in light of the cross, framed by the story of the cross. And only then, I think, can it become meaningful. And one thing that Jesus gave us in this story, it's one of the last things he ever did. And you don't see it in the other gospel writers, but you see it in this story, is that he gave us this community of people uh, that he formed at the, at the base of, at the feet of the cross. This little group of people that he put together. And, and in verse 26, it's this beautiful thing he does. He says to John, his beloved disciple, the writer of the gospel, he says to John, uh, behold your mother. So he's essentially giving John care of his mother. And then he says to Mary, his mother, behold your son, in verse 27. And some commentaries say that he's just looking out for his mom, which would be a beautiful thing to do in excruciating pain. He is doing that. But it's bigger than that because that language of behold is actually official legal terminology for, for adoption. So he's essentially creating a new home. Uh, he's essentially, if this is like a, a kind of a, a declarative legal act. You are now part of one family. You're not biologically related. But now I say that you're spiritually related. He does that as one of his last acts in great pain. It was probably hard for him to say those words. But he does it. Because he wants to create a community of people in this new home. Uh, Verse 27, from that hour the disciple took her to his home. And in that home we process suffering differently. And so it is in that home of, of of the gospel writer John that these early Christians would have formed uh, these little bands. And in in that home, they would have begun to tell each other these stories. The story about the garment, the story about the thirsting, uh, all the stories, the story about Peter's denial. Peter would have told them, you know, I actually denied him three times. And then some of the other disciples would say, I actually ran away. And the two that were on the road to Emmaus, they would have said, we had no idea who he was. He talked to us for hours. We didn't know who he was. And uh, Thomas would have told the story of his doubt and Story after story of failure and suffering and sadness. They would have sat there in in John's home and told stories and said, this is part of something bigger. We don't know what it is. Okay, The plan is inscrutable a lot of times. So don't go around telling people what God planned for them. But what we do know is that there is something bigger. If you can interpret Golgotha in terms of meaning and a bigger story of purpose, then you can interpret anything in terms of a bigger story. And this is Dr. Seau, again, telling these future pastors this terrible story so that it would make us better pastors. That's part of this household of God that tells stories. And I would just say the world doesn't know how to tell these stories. I mean, the world, I don't say this as a way of boasting or saying we're better than the world. It's sad. It's a sad thing. I mean, I, I did not live with a community, the, the household of God, the church. I didn't have that for 21 years of my life. It's very hard to process this level of tragedy All you can kind of say is, I'm so sorry. Um, That's terrible. Um, It's very hard. What resources are there beyond empathy, which is great. Those are important things. But where is the the big story, the big hope, 
the, the meaning that, that Christ brings to suffering. This king uh, who cried out, I thirst, in verse 28. I love that he says that. Uh, he cries out in, in verse 28, I thirst. Now that meant he was literally physically thirsty, which is why they gave him the hyssop. But more than, um, more than physical desperation for water, uh, most commentaries say that's a spiritual desperation for God. That at that moment where he's saying, I thirst, he is not experiencing the presence of God. And so Matthew, another gospel writer, says, instead of I thirst, Matthew 27, 46 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's also from Psalm 22, by the way. And that's what he meant when he said, I thirst. He's saying, I have lost all sense of meaning. I have no sense of God's presence at all. I am in a desert of God forsakenness. If you feel like you are in one, uh, he has felt that and more. No one has ever felt more God forsaken than Jesus Christ on that cross saying, I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And nobody could feel it like him because nobody's ever lost it like he had it. I mean, this is, the, this is the Son of God who enjoyed perfect bliss and fellowship in the Trinity eternally. And now here he is experiencing utter meaningless suffering. And he says in verse 30, it is finished because that cry of I thirst was that, that final finishing touch on the masterpiece. And the masterpiece was, I'm going to absorb all I'm going to drink into myself all of their suffering, all of the meaninglessness of life, all the egregious, extreme evil, the randomness, the accidents, that kind of stuff. I'm going to take that into myself. And so it it, it is finished means that he became utterly thirsty, utterly God forsaken. He kind of embodied the, the man in Psalm 22. I'm going to just read a paragraph of Psalm 22. I, I encourage you to read this uh, kind of in closing here. This is, this is what he was becoming. This is what he intended to become. So in Psalm 22:14, he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a dry piece of pottery. My, stung, my tongue is so dry that it sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, I don't know how in 1000 BC David could have possibly predicted piercing and hands and feet. That, I'll just leave that with you. They, they have pierced my hands and feet. They stare at me. They gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots that that david wrote that in 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 a thousand bc uh, and he was describing what the true king the great king the messiah would look like uh, as Pilate had written above his head uh, this is jesus of nazareth the king of the jews in all the languages it's like Pilate, this is the gospel according to Pilate. He is proclaiming to everyone, all the people in Jerusalem, this is what a true king looks like. Of course, unwittingly, he was saying that uh, this man of sorrows, this, this man of suffering, is, uh, has become infinitely thirsty so that, so that you would not have to thirst. It's because he became like this that he could say to the Samaritan woman, uh, I will give you a kind of a water that, will, that you will drink and never thirst again. It's because he became so thirsty and full of 
the meaninglessness of suffering that he could say to you, uh, I give you the water of life so that you can never be thirsty. And so that, that exchange is what we...